So in the fourth century, when Plato is writing the Platonic Dialogues and thinking about Socrates, the science of physiognomy was popular. There was a thought that you could understand who another person was by looking at their face. And there's a story told by Phaedo of Elis, who is one of Socrates' seemingly historical students. And Phaedo tells the story of some guy named Zopyrus who comes up to Socrates and looks at his face. Zopyrus is a famous physiognomist and says, Socrates, uh, you must be quite stupid and also lascivious. Now, Socrates was famously ugly, apparently. And Socrates' friends who are around, they say, wait, what? No, that's not at all true. That's not true at all. And Socrates says, well, as it turns out, I used to be quite stupid and lascivious, but through philosophy, I changed my, uh, changed my ways. And so now I'm better. So obviously, Plato is no physiognomist, and presumably he is totally skeptical about the reliability of this method, though it seems obvious to me that Plato is really quite interested in this question, how do we know other people? This is the Mirror of Antiquity, where we see ourselves in the study of the ancient world. I'm Curtis Sojer. Sometimes I think about this, what if a Socrates were to show up in my life? And I started getting asked these questions. And you know, you're reading the dialogues and you're always reading for him. And he's talking to these people who get totally confounded and they get shamefaced and they get flabbergasted and you think, oh, that's pretty funny and they deserve it. But you think, wait, but I wouldn't want, I don't think I would want that to happen. Probably there's so much stuff I don't know about myself. And yet in writing about self-knowledge, it's easy to forget that. It's easy to think like, oh, because I'm being thoughtful about self-knowledge, I too, therefore, have self-knowledge. And yet I might not. There's lots of things I'm not thinking about. I'm not thinking about all the time how I am toward other people or you know how I am to my spouse, how I am to close friends. I mean, I often think I am. But the sheer fact that I think I am being self-reflective and thoughtful and knowing myself in those relationships may be itself the obstacle to, as it were, going even deeper, being more self-critical. And it is anxiety-provoking to think that there could be someone who could inquire of me and show me up. The ancient Greek philosopher Socrates is usually considered the first philosopher in anything like the sense of the word as we use it today. He was famous for going around ancient Athens and asking people questions, and then asking them questions about their answers, and keeping on questioning them relentlessly until they became angry and left, or admitted that they didn't know as much as they thought they did about whatever he was originally asking them, and usually about themselves too. Most of us probably wouldn't enjoy being subjected to that kind of relentless questioning. The evidence from Socrates' life suggests that most people in antiquity didn't like being subjected to it either. But my guest today, Christopher Moore, thinks that however frustrating and annoying it might be, it would probably be worth it to find someone or some group of people to be our Socrates. Because if we do this, we have a better chance of acquiring something that Socrates seems to have considered very important if one wanted to live a good life knowledge about ourselves. We suspect that this was important to Socrates because in the dialogues that Socrates' student Plato wrote about Socrates, 
He makes so many references to the famous Greek maxim, know yourself, which was supposedly inscribed on the wall of the entryway to the temple of the Delphic Oracle. In ancient Greek, the phrase combines a Greek word for knowing, gignoskein, with the reflexive pronoun seauton, yourself. And it comes up in a bunch of dialogues, including the Phaedrus and the Alcibiades. For Socrates, this maxim, know yourself, seems to have embodied much of what he was trying to accomplish for himself, and for other people as well. Just what Socrates thought those words and that maxim meant is the subject of my guest Christopher Moore's new book called Socratic Self-Knowledge. It's not a simple question to answer, because Socrates never explicitly describes what he thinks it means, because what counts as knowledge can mean a lot of different things, and even the narrower idea of self-knowledge can feel pretty daunting, like it's something mysterious, something almost mystical, something you'd have to be the father of philosophy to achieve. But when we look at self-knowledge the way Christopher thinks Socrates invites us to, we find something unexpected. Maybe it's not such a hard thing to achieve. Maybe we don't have to become philosophers, but can just go about our ordinary lives as long as we develop a heightened attention to the resources that are already all around us, ready to help us live a good life in a Socratic sense. We just have to learn how to recognize them. Welcome. So, in Plato's Phaedrus, for example, Socrates is trying to explain why he doesn't spend his time studying mythic history. And Socrates says, well, that's all quite interesting. Actually, it's very fascinating. But he says, I don't have time to be looking into, well, effectively, the local history of Athens because I have to look into myself. And I have not yet even been able to obey the Delphic inscription, which tells me to know myself. He refers to the Delphic inscription about a half dozen times in Socratic literature. I think it is connected to the fact that when Socrates or any of his contemporaries saw the slogan, know yourself, they didn't know what that meant, but they assumed it to be important. So it seemed like it had something to do with knowing, with gnosking, with recognizing, with acknowledging, and something to do with themselves. Sauton, yourself, is a reflexive, but it doesn't really identify what about oneself or in what way about oneself one is to know. They were puzzled by it, and they didn't understand what the maxim exactly wanted them to do. And so it shows that there's, as it were, an industry in trying to interpret what this maxim means, which I think historically Socrates was very responsive to and said, like, this, we all agree, is the thing we need to deal with, i.e. knowing oneself. And it's like you imagine some totally influential theologian saying, what exactly does love thy neighbor mean? Or Jesus says, love thy neighbor, because he had heard it. And, you know, everyone thinks loving the neighbor is important, but he's like, no, no, this is the thing we actually have to take absolutely seriously, because I think it is not clear what that means, to love the neighbor as oneself. Well, how much am I supposed to love myself? My neighbor is quite different than I am. How do I have the attitude I have toward myself, toward another? Does that mean that I'm supposed to change my attitude toward myself? Does it mean I'm supposed to change my attitude toward my neighbor? Is it a matter of just getting the quantity right? I think that we might think, well, we have a basic idea, and we have some sort of intuitive sense for what it doesn't mean. What it does mean is got to be something connected to 
respecting other people, treating them as ends in themselves, treating them in the way that we would want to be treated, sort of a kind of golden rule thing, but also recognizing that we do prefer ourselves over the people in distant lands. Are we supposed to act toward people in distant lands in the same way we act toward ourselves, like give them all of our salary or something. It's just like quite mystifying, even though it seems about right. So too with knowing oneself, it's like, what about myself am I supposed to know? And is it even a matter of knowing? If it's recognizing myself, is it recognizing myself as something? Is it supposed to be contrastive? Am I supposed to know or recognize myself in contrast to knowing or recognizing the law? So Socrates finds himself a respondent to this inscription, he himself is trying to obey it. And what I wanted to think about or what I want to write about is how he is depicted as doing that, how he is depicted as trying to take as seriously as possible what might be the great Greek moral imperative, know thyself. So the ancient Greeks didn't really know what know thyself meant. And one point Christopher makes in his book is that there were a lot of ideas going around about what this might mean. Socrates wasn't the only person trying to figure out what it meant. Lots of people were. And this makes it even more daunting for us to figure out. If Socrates didn't know, where does that leave us? But if we remember that Socrates in Plato's Apology said he got his start in philosophy because the oracle at Delphi told his friend that no one was wiser than Socrates, but Socrates himself felt like he didn't know anything, then maybe we should start our search for knowledge where Socrates did, with a feeling of a lack of knowledge. What are the times when we didn't know someone? Might these also be moments when we didn't know ourselves? Socrates is presented as so masterful He's presented as someone who has a sort of complete understanding of the people he's talking to. And so that's the way in which it strikes me sometimes like, oh, we're just trying to keep up with Socrates. And I think inevitably it could lead me to think, how do I know other things about people? It's not shown in the dialogue how he knows about other people. So I need to return to my own resources and think, how do I know about other people? How do I know what pushes people's buttons? Or how do I know what people aspire to? How do I know what really gets someone revved up? And it's hard to figure that out. I think what we especially know is what are the times when that goes wrong? What are the times when I've had someone I thought was my friend and I'm trying to have a conversation and we don't get anywhere? So I remember this especially, yeah, after I graduate from college, I think a year or two later. Yeah, this friend, we were really quite close in college. We went our own ways. Um, you know, I went home and she traveled for a year or two. And we found ourselves both in Washington, D.C. We went out for burritos. And the kinds of stuff that we would have talked about in the past, like, oh, so what are you going to be doing now that you're back from traveling or being in Peace Corps or something like that? And she would be like, oh, I don't know. And then a little bit annoyed that I was asking this question as though this is some kind of a priority of success or like you have to have a great narrative for your life. And I was like, well, but I just don't even remember this as being part of our friendship in the past. That aside, I felt like I didn't know how to have a conversation with this person who was a decent friend of mine because I could no longer read her. I didn't see that having traveled for two years, probably she had some kind of change of 
life or change of vision or change of priorities in the time that she was gone. And I didn't see that. And I couldn't make sense of it. I couldn't ask the right questions to get us back on the same wavelength. It showed me the ways in which friendship and conversation are so closely connected. Like it felt like I didn't know her at all. It's like I didn't know what kinds of questions to ask because I didn't know the kinds of things that were valuable to her because she made those kinds of questions that were normally totally standard questions like, what are you doing next? Seem parochial or self-involved or missing out on other possible ways of living in the world. And yet, I mean, and that would have been nice to learn about those other things those other ways of living. But it's like the kind of meeting of the minds that would be necessary for learning about those other ways of living in the world were cut off because we're already too different. And, and then, then there's the added problem that the whole time I'm baffled by what's going on. And so I'm not in a position to be able to meet. And presumably she's having similar thoughts, like why is this dude asking such dumb questions? At least as Plato describes him, Socrates didn't get into situations like this. He knew how to ask questions that would lead to the kind of knowledge he was seeking, both for himself and, ideally, for the person who spoke with him. And what this meant, apparently, was learning a different kind of thing than what we normally think about when we say knowledge. Plato gives us an example of this in a conversation between Socrates and the brilliant and enigmatic politician Alcibiades. I think the most famous case of Socrates seeing into someone is Alcibiades. It's a young man who was like the most ambitious of the Athenians and was perhaps the most legitimately ambitious. Like he really did have the most intellect, insight, charisma. I mean, like Alexander the Great or something like that. What Socrates sees in Alcibiades is this great energy that Socrates thinks directed well could make Alcibiades as happy a person as possible, or as successful a citizen of Athens as possible. How did Socrates see that in Alcibiades? Why didn't he just see him as some popular, ambitious young person, you know, well-positioned young person? How did he see him as also a person well worth his time, as philosophically promising? He t tells Alcibiades, well, you don't recognize really the extent to which your desires to rule involve a desire to rule over the largest possible area, like not just Greece, but the whole inhabited world. Socrates says, so you need to know yourself. And what Socrates seems to mean there, and there's some clues around and about, is that Alcibiades needs to know the extent of his desires. Basically, Socrates thinks what we need to do is redirect our attention from learning more stuff of the things we've already been learning. And to learn about oneself doesn't mean, well, I need to just like introspect and see what's inside there. But I need to learn something about my own ability to learn, my own priorities, my own commitments, the things which either help me deal with the stuff that I do learn or direct me to learning other things, or it might even tell me, look, I don't need to learn anything more. That's not the important thing right now. Plato clearly intended his version of Socrates to be a kind of model for people interested in the philosophical life. And you can study that model in the dialogues that Plato wrote, showing Socrates in conversation with others. But Christopher doesn't think Plato's Socrates is the only model that might work. You can find the same thing, he thinks, in the novels of Leo Tolstoy, 
or in George Eliot's novel, Middlemarch. There are reasons for liking both Plato and Tolstoy or Eliot. Novels that seem to have a kind of depth and complexity and richness where it's something like, not like I want to be reading Plato in a novel form, but where you think, oh, wait, these authors are extremely thoughtful. So an example, Middlebarch. It's a relatively low plot story. There are digressions up the wazoo. I feel like I learn, like from the factual perspective, a number of things about the railroad revolution in early 19th century England and medical revolution and change in cities and learning and so forth. But there's a narrator. And this narrator, I just think like, oh, she's giving stuff on the side. She's like in, uh, filling in what's going on. She's giving me insights into the action, sort of like as a parentheses. And I think, oh, she has a lot of insight. Now, of course, you know, George Eliot has constructed this whole thing, but still I think, oh, there's so much insight into how people are. And so I felt like a feeling of love or like attraction for the narrator, because I think this person is helping me understand how people operate in a way that on my own, I wouldn't be able to see. And now I don't think of Plato as a novelist. He doesn't take you into the minds of his characters, but he gives you hints that one should take oneself into the minds of the characters. The image of Socrates and the image of Socrates engaging with other characters assumes a kind of complex psychology. And he's really indirect. He is reticent. He's ironic. So I feel like we're drawn to assume that psychology that novelists also do. It's that their narrators and their writers just really seem so enormously curious about people. I guess in the ideal case, it seems like the narrator is one of these ideal kind of like Socratic people. They are, as it were, asking questions. I feel like I want to be listening to the things they're saying because it's because like they have a lot of insight, because they know what to pay attention to. They know what's important in a certain way. They seem to be experts in what life is about. Is there a knowledge about living well? And what is that knowledge like? How is that knowledge similar to and different from the other kinds of things we think we have knowledge. If you have knowledge of playing the piano, we have a basic idea for the kinds of things that go into that. We have knowledge of a language, with some idea of the things that go into that. All of those are parts of living. There's a way in which getting self-knowledge might just mean know how to live. But it's also weird to think of it in that way. We think instead it's just like the most fundamental ability you would need, the most fundamental skill in learning to live. It's not the normal way we speak about our lives. We don't normally think like, oh, this summer I'm going to learn this amount about living well. Because we don't think of life very often as an object that needs to be learned about. We don't think of it as a corpus or a body of knowledge. And telling someone know how to live is a very arresting thing. Because I think most of us most of the time think, you don't have to learn anything special. You just live. You just do it. It's natural. It's part of who we are. And if someone tries to question you, like, 
are you sure you know how to live? You find that very offensive. It's like, yeah, I'm living my life. If anyone knows how to do it, I know how to do it. And I think the Socratic line is, there's no other department of life where we think simply by doing it, we're experts in it. Most things we think worth doing are difficult. Speaking a new language, doing the stuff appropriate to our profession, complicated hobbies, wood, like woodworking, for example. Why not life? Why not assume that's extremely difficult? A lot of times I have no problem admitting that living life is extremely difficult. Or at least that knowing how to live my life is extremely difficult. But what if this is because I'm thinking about it in the wrong way? What if the idea I have of what it would feel like to have self-knowledge is in fact preventing me from seeing how to achieve it? When I feel like I'm just wandering through life, the opposite feels attractive. It feels attractive to know how to live, to always know what I wanted to do. But then I think, would I really like that? Isn't that wandering part of the fun of life? So I go back to lacking knowledge. But these two ideas, a life without knowledge and life with it, don't correspond to what Socrates is talking about. Socrates invites us to see the relationship of knowledge and how you live your life in a different way. We live in a kind of post-Freudian, post-therapeutic age where self-knowledge for us means knowing stuff about our consciousness, knowing things about how it feels to be ourselves, about how our thinking goes, how our conscious experience goes. That's different than what Socrates was up to. He wasn't sitting people on the couch and letting them ramble on for a long time. In fact, he seemed to be against people rambling on against people, just like flooding him with all of their memories. So what it looked like to me was that what Socrates was suggesting in his interpretation of the, of the know yourself, of self-knowledge, is that we need to try to know the stuff about ourselves that is knowable, that is the stable stuff about ourselves, but there's not much that's stable to start out with. And so the process of education, the process of self-testing, the process of answering innumerable questions, trying to get a consistent answer is the process of trying to make parts of ourselves stable. Once they're stable, once they don't fall away at every inspection, once they don't like sort of move around, you know, like some sort of fish, then we can know it. We can know them. And this is maybe the paradoxical thing. And we think, well, what can, what can be stable about ourselves? Our bodies are not that stable. Our impressions of the world are not that stable. But one thing that is stable, could be stable, are the things we value the most. There's a way in which we can seek a kind of stability in the things we value the most that doesn't then somehow close off our life. It's not like, oh, and now our life is finished. You might say it's like, well, what is it to be a really great soccer player? Well, a not great soccer player is someone who has off days and on days. They're really quite irregular. Uh, they can hit a bunch of nice shots, but they also hit a bunch of bad shots. What a soccer player is working toward when she's practicing all the time is to have stable capacities, stable abilities, such that whenever she tries to kick in a certain way, the ball goes. Whenever she tries to keep running, she can keep running. And it is that stability which then allows her to be playing at a great level and that can go on in many occasions. It's not like, oh, now she's a great soccer player, time to be done, or now everything is static. It's like, actually, now it seems like what she wants to do can go better. So too, I take it that this Socratic 
life is one in which we're not trying to achieve some kind of top of the mountain guru status where now all we do is sit and other people can come up and ask us questions. We've basically finished, you know, finished the last level. Instead, it's it's like getting the skills that we need to live our life well. In some sense, like not like finishing our life, it's finishing the apprenticeship for our life. I think that Socrates thinks we live well when we act in accordance with what, with what we think is valuable, with what we think is good. And so basically, to become a self, I think for Socrates, it's to become a person who can recognize the reasons for doing what one does. And that doesn't mean that everything one does has a specific object in mind. It's not like, oh, I'm going to follow rule one or rule two or rule three or decision procedure one or decision procedure two. But it's that I can acknowledge why I'm, I'm doing this as it were coming from myself. So we often say, oh, I didn't even mean to do that or doing that was out of character or I don't know why I did that. It just popped in there. And those things describe all the times we think that it wasn't myself who was doing this. You know, we have these often secret to ourselves models of people we'd like to be. And we think, oh, well, if I was that kind of person, that's not what I would have done. So I think when Socrates says, know yourself, or when he's hearing the know yourself, I think he's hearing become a thing which is understandable as yourself. But I think he doesn't see the process as locating what is really me and you know, then sloughing off everything else. I think that he sees it as a project, as a goal, as something aspirational, to become something that you could recognize as yourself. And that seems to be the goal of maturation, to say, I want to be a person where all the things I do, I do because I meant to do them, or because I want to do them, or they fit in with the kind of person I want to be. And it's not that I don't want to be spontaneous. It's not like I want to have a program for myself, but I don't want it to be like, oh, I'm always struggling against myself. So in that respect, I'd say knowing yourself is a formulation for maturation. It's a formulation for our appreciating our imperfections. It is a mode of being modest and humble, but also aspirational, also striving, also thinking the way I am now is it's a point on a line. It's the result of a bunch of contingent forces, plus some efforts that I've made, plus a lot of efforts of people around me, teachers, parents, friends, advisors of every sort. And Socratic conversation helps us try to winnow out what kinds of things we think are good, such that we will always think they're good. This must be one of the reasons Plato decided to make Socrates a character in dialogues that recount conversations among groups of people, because he believed that this paradoxical blend of striving and humility is produced in such conversations, and by observing such conversations. Plato's dialogues often feature not just speakers, but people listening to the speakers. Why did he put them there if they're not going to say anything? It's to dramatize the benefit of watching Socrates interact with others which in turn should prompt us to think about what benefit we might gain from watching others interact. Because just as in novels we can find narrators who model Socratic self-knowledge for us, 
There are people around us who can be models for this as well. Even if they're not the people you might initially assume were following a Socratic method in their lives. I mean, I thought my grandparents actually were, relatively speaking, wise. And I think, what, what does it mean that they were wise or that I judge them to be wise? I think what it means is I judge them to be experts in living. I think I believe that they were really knowledgeable about how you go through life. And I think that they were very self-reflective. I think they're very sensitive. I mean, together I saw how they were very responsive to one another and could push to a certain extent, but were always pushing one another within a context of love and concern and so forth. So I think if we think, yeah, we, we do have this language of wisdom, of maturity, and living well. And I think that those are our ways of describing people who have become knowledgeable or expert in life. And I think that if we were to look at these people's Rolodex, as it were, I and mean, I think we would see these people have also become that way through a lot of Socratic conversations. I think it's hard to imagine someone we think is an expert in living who just willed it to be so, or who was just like so smart, but kept to themselves the whole time. And this is not against being introspective or against liking one's own time, but it does mean that one's got to be open to the lives of others. And one's got to think that what other people are like, learning what other people are like could help you learn about yourself, and that is to say, learn how to live. This talk about grandparents shouldn't disguise the difficulty of achieving what Christopher's did. It shouldn't disguise the difficulty of what Socrates did. Remember I said that Socrates got his start because the Delphic Oracle said that no one was wiser than Socrates, but Socrates thought he didn't know anything? Well, according to Plato, what he did in response was he decided to test the Oracle's claim. He went around asking people who were known for their expertise and their wisdom about the kind of knowledge they had, and one by one he ended up concluding that none of these people actually had any kind of knowledge that he considered worthwhile. In the end, he accepted the oracle's judgment that no one was wiser than he, not because he was so wise, but because he was the only one he could find who knew he wasn't wise, when everyone else thought they were wise but weren't. Not everyone liked being questioned in this way, and it probably contributed to Socrates earning some powerful enemies, enemies who managed to get him convicted and executed in 399 BCE. So we can be forgiven if we don't want to pursue self-knowledge to that extent. But when we get right down to it, are we really in danger of turning out like Socrates? Or like the people he questioned and who turned against him? Socrates definitely has views or intuitions about the difficulty people have in avoiding self-deception. He thinks that self-deception is a totally common mode of living. And it appears that the only way around self-deception is having other people help you with that. One thing he's trying to do, he's trying to learn from somebody. And he thinks that people are very willing to teach them. In fact, that seems true. People love answering questions. They love talking a lot. They especially love it when they are presented as an authority about some issue. He'll ask people questions. They will answer often at length. And he'll say, oh, let me ask a follow-up question. And they're happy to answer. He'll ask some more follow-up questions. And by some point, he'll say, well, the thing you just said seems to be in contradiction to the thing you first said. And so he is 
showing by asking these very, very persistent questions to people who are highly confident, highly self-confident, that merely being confident doesn't mean that they are right to be confident. And so he is having to needle or wheedle or annoy the hell out of people in order for them to see something about themselves that they did not otherwise see. And that is a risky maneuver. It's risky because what Socrates is trying to do is get through these self-deceptions to get people to realize where their weaknesses are, where they think they're committed to something good, but it's actually not good, etc. And yet some people's self-deception mechanisms are so strong that it will act up and basically maintain the self-deception by turning against Socrates, by thinking that Socrates is just trying to one-up them, Socrates is just trying to shame them, Socrates is just trying to be a real jerk. So we see almost through the instances where Socratic questions are rebuffed, how important those questions are. That is, how important it is that we allow other people to ask us questions and that we try to answer sincerely. We try to answer with the sense that another person is not trying to get something over us by asking those questions, that another person may be trying to help us, another person may be, in some sense, even modeling the kinds of questions they want in return. So the Socratic conversations, we often see them as readers to be just Socrates' hectoring people trying to discredit their authority as teachers, as politicians, or whatever. But I think we can instead see him as trying to model, in some sense, even the questions we should be trying to ask ourselves. And why is that social? Well, because we don't usually spend time trying to teach ourselves things. And so we don't spend much time evaluating whether the things we think we know are consistent, clear, explanatorily relevant, on point. But if you have someone who can present himself or herself as not knowing, there's an occasion, as it were, to be manifesting all the stuff that's in your mind. We can develop that ability only after going through a lot of actual conversations with other people. And what are those actual conversations like? Well, what those actual conversations are like are our talking in ways we're familiar with. It's just drawn out, like many of us are familiar with explaining things to people. Many of us are familiar with giving illustrations. Many of us are familiar with giving lists of examples. And so Socrates is able to have people use those standard modes of social conversation to reveal to themselves something that they had not been revealing to themselves. What Socrates wants us to do then is to allow ourselves to be questioned without defensiveness and with a real spirit of curiosity about what we might learn if we do so. And we don't need to be experts in analytic philosophy to do this. We just need to seek out lots of conversations of the sort that Socrates liked to have. The first question to ask then is, who are the people in my life with whom I've had these kinds of conversations? Was I open to them or closed? Did I recognize them as a good thing at the time? when I was first dating the person who is now my wife, she, more than basically anybody, would be asking these persistent questions like, why are you acting this way toward me? Or, you're hung up on some old person, aren't you? And like, oh, no, no. But then she would just like keep asking, like, then why are you doing this? Why are you saying these other things? And I felt like it was quite uncomfortable being asked those questions. And I was thinking, in some sense, like, why am I tolerating this like seemingly persistent questioning about my motives when we're dating or when we're not dating or something like that. But it had a couple impressive results. One, I think I understood myself a lot better. And two, 
I thought, oh, this is a person, person I married, who cares about me in a very serious way, in, in a much different way than other people might, because she is pushing me to answer questions that I don't want to answer. And so she's not just being a flatterer. She's not just like being a friend where we can have a good time together, but is saying like, no, understand yourself in, these, in this respect. So the question is like, how do you get more people like that in your life? How do you get more people? How do you occasion for people? Or how do you give people the occasion, find the right people to be that kind of Socratic figure for yourself? And again, if life is complicated, we need in some way to be confronting the broadest range of other people who have learned about life. Two, I think one thing is hanging out with people who are really curious. You have to show that you care about the same stuff they care about. And I don't mean that in some kind of suck up way. I mean, it's, and it's not even like being, oh, important Socratic-like character or Socratic-like person. Would you please correct me? Because I'm sure that I'm wrong in many ways but that you are a serious individual or you're serious about self-improvement or you're serious about what actually is valuable. And so a lot of it is being open and not being defensive. And so I think that it's this, I don't know, a chicken and egg kind of thing. That is, in some sense, you almost need to show that you are engaged yourself in a process of self-knowledge because you think improving yourself is important. You feel that knowing the kind of being you are in the world is important because, because that's what will get other people who are better than you and who will be very helpful to you that's what will get them to think, oh, it's worth talking to this person. This person is a worthy conversationalist. Yeah, so not being defensive, being interested, being interested in other people. And so if you didn't care about other people, you just like talk about video games or something. And how does one take up that at least mini Socratic role without being disdainful, without being condescending, without being totally presumptuous? A lot of times that we're having deep conversations with friends, it's when they are having some kind of doubt. And it seems as though, well, we should do what we see the people who are Socratic toward us doing, which is they're not really trying to do anything fancy. They just are actually interested in what we're doing. And they're trying to understand because they feel like they're trying to know the same things. So in some way, it's weird because they are both quite personally interested. But the questions they have are often impersonal. Like they just want to know stuff. They can benefit me most by just trying to have a normal conversation. Where? they're also trying to get to the bottom. They're not just trying to have the conversation to the extent that it is pleasant, to the extent that it's easy. And as soon as you start saying, well, I'm not really sure, they say, oh, let's turn the, let's turn the page. Let's go to a different topic. It's once you say, oh, I don't know, then they're like, oh, well, then we need to figure this out or you must have some idea. So they present themselves as just genuinely curious and they treat me as someone who's worth listening to as someone who can speak, someone who is part of this conversation as an equal. Finding conversationalists to help you attain Socratic self-knowledge isn't just a one-way street. You should be ready to play that role for others, too. Christopher and his wife had a son while he was working on his book about Socratic self-knowledge. He found that being a parent to a toddler means a lot of discussions about the world, a lot of why questions. In short, it means a lot of opportunities for Socratic conversation. I think what I say in the, in the acknowledgments is that the book has shown me that knowing oneself and knowing what's good are about the same thing. And so then I can hope that for uh, my son and I can think, well, it is just our engaging in activities that will show him 
and he'll come to realize that we're doing them because they're good to do. And not doing it just because we're forced to by circumstance, we're forced to by the force of physics or something like that. One thing that's neat about it being a parent is that you have to teach them all the stuff. Like they don't know anything and you have to teach it all to them. But as it turns out, it doesn't feel very much like it's teaching them stuff. What teaching them really is, is just doing things with them. It's like eating dinner with them. It's walking around. It's going on a hike. It's playing. So when you have a child, you're teaching them about the world, but you're not teaching them about the world through giving them instruction, but in some sense by modeling being in the world and doing so with them and especially doing so with them in a way that shows your interest in their doing the stuff with you. That may be all it is to, as it were, help someone get self-knowledge is to be talking with them, playing with them, doing activities together, and talking about the kinds of things that matter. You know, like, why are we doing this? Well, you know, you're not going to put it like, because I want to have a stable reason to do things. But like, this is, this is a good thing. Why is this a good thing? And so we talk in a moral language. We imagine how we might be. And all of these kinds of conversations and shared activities expressing interest in other people, especially when they're not sure what they're doing, when they are going to be hung up somehow by their own current beliefs, that all those things, well, in some sense, conduce to self-knowledge. So I think with a child, we're helping the child discover who they want to be. And so then we can say there's a general principle that, yeah, we need to see other people. We need to see other, in some way, we need to see other ways we might be. We have to look around to see who we are. We have to look around to see who we might be. So when you look around, who do you see? Who is your Socratic community? Your partner in life? Your elders? What about your friends? Have you recognized the Socratic models that might be right there in front of you? Have you taken them up on it when they offered to help you achieve self-knowledge? Have you been there with that Socratic mix of humility and striving to help them? Don't sit around waiting for the philosopher with the long beard and bare feet to show up, because even your toddler can be a source of self-knowledge for you. He's looking to you, but are you looking to him? there's a marsh that's behind our house. And when we get home from school, we get off the bike, and he just wants to run down to Millbrook Marsh, down the hill, because he thinks, like, it's really fun being in this great big open expanse. It is, it's funny to be thinking about it as self-knowledge because, again, it seems so non-internal. Yet, on the other hand, for both of us recognizing that that's what we like to do, we like to go and be in the marsh and walk around on the boardwalk and count the ducks and so it's like a discovery of what, of what is valuable to me and to him. After I graduated from college, I did not move to New York City. But I always thought, oh, but I'd love to have moved to New York City. I'd love to move to New York City and have dinner parties and I'd go to museums on the weekends and have some kind of life that is an urban life. But it took me a while to realize I keep not being in New York City and I am in more bucolic settings that that's actually what I want to be doing. I mean, maybe being in New York would be fun, but what I like is being outside and looking at ducks and things like that. And it perhaps took a while to find that out. So somehow it's like not some sort of mysterioso thing. Now, 
in the history of philosophy, there's a lot of mysterioso things that self-knowledge is about. It's like the divine inside you or the one or the soul or all kinds of stuff, which for many people are extremely important items about themselves. But that sort of like theoretical purity or theological relevance, I think, needn't be thought to exhaust what self-knowledge is. There's ways in which it is much more continuous with, for someone like me, my day-to-day life, and I think for my son, his day-to-day life. Like, what kind of thing do you like doing? We can run down the hill. I can be excited. I can be, I I even have an encouragement to manifest my interest in going to the marsh. Let's go to the marsh. Let's go to the marsh. Because he wants to be excited about going down there. He is excited. But in part, I think he is especially excited, or he can feel like he can be excited because I can reciprocate that excitement. I think he can see, oh, this is something that can be valued. This is something that's fun. This is something that's not naughty. And we can express our appreciation of something. I mean, and that's funny, but I think what else is there to know about oneself but that like one likes to go to the marsh behind one's house? It does seem presumptuous to tell people that they need to know themselves, they need to know how to live, because it seems to take away like the last thing that people can feel confident about. They feel like, okay, the world is totally crazy. It's really difficult to do anything. At least I have my life, which I can live. I know what I like. I can try to do what I like. But it has this other side, which is that, well, knowledge is just the stuff you can learn. And it's stuff that once you've learned, you might even have a good grip on it. And so it suggests that life is something you can improve at. So for there to be a a knowledge of life, which again is a weird way of speaking, but to think we can do better. We have some hope. We have something to aspire to. And in the same way that, well, we can aspire to play soccer better. We can aspire to speak foreign, foreign languages better. We can aspire to be better at being friends. So Socrates is really valuable in that he tries to say life, well, certain parts of it, are in our control. Life is not just some tragedy. There are many things that are not in our control, but there are things in our control. How do you become a Socratic person? You just become a good person. And what is it to be a good person? You care about stuff. You care about people. You care about knowing. That's it. of Antiquity is produced by me, Curtis Dozier, and Lucy Rosenthal, with the support of the Vassar College Department of Greek and Roman Studies and Academic Computing Services. Baynard Bailey is our recording engineer, and Emma Schulte designed our logo. There's a playlist of music heard on today's episode at our webpage, mirrorofantiquity.com, along with a link to Christopher's book on Socratic self-knowledge and all our previous episodes. I know it's been a while since we put out a full-length episode like this, but Lucy, Yasmin, and I have a lot more in the works. The best thing to do is to just subscribe to the show, and then you won't miss a thing when the new episodes come out. And we'd love it if you'd tell your friends about the show or leave a review on Apple Podcasts, which is one of the main ways new listeners can find us. But the main thing is that you took the time to listen. So, thanks. Passing flies and ends like a book on a shelf